Galatians 2. So um, I was trying to think about how to introduce this chapter. Uh, We're talking right now kind of the history. Paul takes chapters one and two and just kind of goes over the history of the gospel. What happened to him, how it moved out, those kind of conversations. And I was reminded of a show called MacGyver. I think it's, isn't there a new remake of it? Yeah, I haven't seen it, but I don't know if it's the same. But MacGyver was always a show that no matter what happened at minute 59 with duct tape and dental floss, everything worked out perfectly, right? You're like, yeah, heroes, okay, woohoo. And a lot of times I think we look at the Bible like a 1980s sitcom where at the end of it, it's just all fuzzy and beautiful and everything works out wonderfully. That's not at all the Bible, right? It's gritty and hard and there's crisis and you've got people with their opinions and you've got rude people and there's a mistake somebody makes and it just echoes in and hurts a bunch of other people. There's theological discussions and dialogue. There's hotheads, there's hurtful comments. It's just like the church today, (laughs) right? It's exactly the same. But somehow we look back and we're like, oh, Oh, if it only we could be like the book of Acts, guess what? We are like the book of Acts. <laughs> We're exactly like the book of Acts. That's what we are. We have all the same stuff that they had, all the same problems. You know, you know the big problem in the church today? Me, you, people. People are the big problem in the church. And once you understand that, church becomes this beautiful thing. Once you're okay with people being broken and hurt and not being perfect, man, church becomes this incredible thing that you enjoy then because you're not putting so much weight on it that it can't take it. Like we want it to be the highway to heaven, but church is much closer to the highway to hell sinky. That's what it's much closer to. And once you can really sink your teeth into that and be like, okay, this is the way church is. And there's gonna be these things that are gonna happen but it's okay because it becomes this beautiful, incredible mess. And God uses all these things as a crucible to change me in it. And it's awesome then. So we're gonna see in chapter two, the beautiful mess because it's gonna get messy and it's awesome. So here we go. Verse one. So chapter one, he's talked about what happened to him. He gets saved. He starts preaching the gospel. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised though he was a Greek. He was very thankful for that. (laughs) We got really sharp rocks. We can do it. No, 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 I don't want to. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. 
And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those I say who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who works through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, have you seen that pattern here? <laughs> Perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised only. They asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Okay, let's try to unpack this section. Here's what's happening. And it's really good. It's a church council. It's, hey, let's make sure that all of us that are preaching the gospel, let's make sure we're all preaching the same thing. Okay? That's what this church council is. If you want a really cool study, go from 8325, the Nicene Council, all the way up through Martin Luther and look at the church councils. They're amazing. It was those councils that set in stone much of our theology today, right? I'll give you one. The 325 Nicene Council was this. It was the church reacting to a group called the Semi-Arianists. And they said this, Jesus isn't God. He's like God, but he's not God. And so there was this massive debate and it went on and on and on. And finally there was this council called and everybody got together and they hashed it out over days. And as they were hashing it out, the semi-Arianists, they're gonna write out this thing. This is what we believe about Jesus. And you know this, I've said it before. The semi-Arianists said, hey, 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 don't use that word, homoous, because it means identical. They said, instead, put an I in there because if you put an I in there, it changes the word from identical to similar. And that church council responded by saying, no, we will not give you one iota. And that's where we get that saying from. That's how powerful that was. Uh-uh, you're not going to make Jesus like every other religion that has these demigods, you know, that are half God, half God, half not God. You're not gonna make Jesus into that. And they defended that. And if you look at the councils, they were defending something that today we say, that's Christianity. Brilliant. All the way up to Martin Luther, right? What did Martin Luther do? He went in 1517 with his 95 thesis and he, thesis, and he nailed it to the castle door at Wittenberg. And what he was saying there is same thing in this history of how we have dealt with differences. Let's deal with these 95 things that I have against what you're doing. Let's hash them out. Let's talk. That's actually what he was doing. I want to hash these things out, right? And that happened on what day? Does anybody know? The 31st of October, right? Halloween, All Saints Day. That's when he did it, right? So I celebrate Halloween by eating bratwurst and memorize the 95 Thesis. <laughs> Much better than candy. My kids hate me, but memorize them. No, I don't really. So what he was doing, he was inviting in, hey, let's hash this out. But instead what the, the dominant church at that time did, they said, nah, we're gonna stamp this guy out. 
And of course, you know the history. Uh, a, a king in Germany took him under his wing. There was this council essentially called the Diet of Worms. What a great name, huh? <laughs> and, and there they had this, they tried to hash it out and they wanted him to recant. And he has this saying, and I, I wrote it out, it's so good. At the end of this, this is, what he, this is what Martin Luther says. When they're saying you're a heretic, we're gonna take you out. This is what he says, quote, unless I am convinced by proofs from scripture or by plain and clear reason and arguments, I can and will not retract for it is neither safe nor wise to do anything against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. What a brilliant, brilliant man. Because at that time, you were burned at the stake for saying stuff like that. And so Luther was saying, burn me at the stake. I'm not changing. I love the church councils. This one right here is the very first one. And this one right here, we studied, it's in Acts chapter 15. And the decision there was, what is required to be a Christian? Do you need to keep Torah? Do you need to be circumcised? Do you need to eat this diet? What is required to become a Christian? And we studied that this summer. And the end of that was Peter saying, we couldn't do it. Why do we expect anyone else to do it? We know that they are saved the same way we are through the grace of Jesus Christ. So that's what's happening here. And notice the motive. I love this. The motive for Paul going, it's found in verse two. I went up in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. How cool is that? The apostle Paul is saying, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page. I want to make sure what I was preaching and what I was teaching and what I'm reading in the scripture and finding about Jesus, I want to make sure the broader community of faith said, dude, you're right on. That's exactly it. You're right on. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever wondered like, am I doing Christianity right right now? Am I walking this out right? I think you should feel that. I think if you've never felt that, you're probably a psychopath. <laughs> because everyone should ha have a healthy tension of, am I doing this right? Like this faith thing is hard. Am I doing this right? Paul had the same thing. And what he did was this. I'm turning to the broad community of faith to ask them, am I doing this right? I'm going up to people who know Jesus and love Jesus and I've watched them and I'm asking them to help me. And so he goes up and here's his method. Verse three, he took Titus. That's his method. When I go up there and they're gonna want Greeks to be circumcised and keep the Torah and keep all these laws. I'm gonna take with me this young man named Titus. And I'm just gonna bring him up there and I'm gonna say, here's my proof that you don't need to be circumcised. It's this guy right here. And whatever they did, however they came across it, at the end of the day, they said, no, he doesn't need to be circumcised. That dude right there does not need to be, to be circumcised. I love that. He just needs Jesus. They decide not to add anything to Jesus. I was thinking about that today because I had this conversation with this lady once where she asked me this. She was not a believer. 
And she asked me this. She said, if I believe in Jesus, do I have to forgive my mother-in-law? Yeah, it caused me to snicker. I'm like, whoa, okay. And immediately what came in my mind was Matthew 6, 15. If you don't forgive people, the father will not forgive you. So I'm like, oh man, that's an interesting question. What do you say on that? Who says you have to forgive your mother-in-law? Raise your hand. Did we just add to Jesus? Is that right? Right, you have a verse. They had a verse for circumcision, right? Genesis 17, they had a verse for circumcision. You gotta be circumcised for you to be in Abraham's family. Just like we have Matthew 6, 15. So this is what I told her. I said, if you believe in Jesus, you will forgive your mother-in-law. It may take some time, no doubt about it. It might be a process, but eventually what will happen to you is you'll start becoming like Jesus. That's the brilliance of the gospel. You believe in Jesus, nothing else. And what happens is as you walk with Jesus, you start to look more and more like him. Second Corinthians 3, 18. So I said, yes, you will forgive. But right now, just believe in Jesus. She's like, I don't wanna forgive my mother-in-law. And she walked away from me. <laughs> How hard is that? Now I trust she'll believe. But that was, it was a fascinating conversation for me because instantly I wanted to add to Jesus. And I think it was God's spirit in that moment saying, uh-uh, 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 uh-uh. I'll change her, I'll change her. She just needs to get saved and then trust me with her. Trust me that my spirit will go into her and metamorphosize. See, with Jesus, there's no copay, right? It's not, we'll pay 90 to 5% and then 5% yours. Uh, if you go for a visit, it's 25. No, with Jesus, there is no copay. So Titus is brought up as, look at him. He is a pagan, uncircumcised Gentile. Look at his life. Look at his love. Look at his attitude. Look at the power of the Holy Spirit in him. He's a living epistle. Look at him. And whatever happened in the course of whatever it was, a month up there, that they're just watching Titus, they went, totally. Guy's amazing. Jesus is in this guy. That's his proof. I'm just bringing with me this guy. And he's just gonna walk around for a while. People that are super legalistic, you know what I say to them now? I don't try to argue anymore with them. I just say, how's that working for you, man? How's it working for you? Are you full of joy? Is your life just abundant and overflowing? Are you kinder to people than you've ever been before? Are you more compassionate and empathetic for people? What's happening to you? Are you reflecting Jesus more? They never say it. Right? Because verse four actually says what they were doing is they were taking away our freedom and turning us into slaves. Right? That's the opposition at this point. The opposition against what Paul was doing was coming in, spying on them, coming into a church service like this, and they're just kind of watching and listening, spying on them. You know, that's happened here. Every once in a while, these, there'll be these little like upticks of people asking me questions about something. And I had one of them a number of years ago. Everyone just started asking about Sabbath days. Hey, aren't we supposed to worship on Saturday? And I go to you know, Romans chapter 14, Colossians chapter two, and kind of run through that with them. And it just kept happening. I'm like, what in the world? And then one Sunday morning, it was like nine, you know, almost nine o'clock. There was a guy up here standing and he had this big stack of books. And he's like looking around. And I was like, what in the world is that guy doing? So I walk up to him 
And I get up right next to him and I can see the author of the book. It's Ellen G. White. If you know, she's the founder of Seventh-day Adventist. So I said, hey, bud, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I've been here a couple of weeks and some people wanted some books. I said, what books are they? Oh, uh, just some books. I said, I see what books those are. I said, you need to go right now. You need to go out to the hall right now. Get out of here. Don't give away your books anymore. If you wanna come join with us, no problem. But don't proselytize your own brand here. Don't do that. We also had in the um, RCC time, we had somebody that had, I don't know how they did it, but they'd come up, they'd put in the card for a different church on all the seats. It, yeah, it was so funny. Me and Dorky were like picking them up and we're just, you know, taking them out, burning them. And uh, I'm like, I can't believe all the effort somebody went through to try to convert the saved. I mean, why aren't they out there talking to people that are lost? And the storekeeper looked at me and said, that's what they think they're doing. I went, that is brilliant. That's exactly what they think they're doing. They think we're lost. So much effort in Christianity is you're trying to convert the saved instead of trying to save the lost. And to me, it's just tragedy. It's tra- that's exactly what these people are doing. They were coming in, whether the believers in Jesus or not, I don't know but they're coming into a church full of people that love Jesus and then they're trying to convert them to their system. What a tragic waste of kingdom energy. And so Paul is like, no way. And this is what he says, verse five. I love this verse. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Iron-willed Paul. Now listen to that one, and I want to share another verse with you. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Listen to this. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law though not being under the law myself, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means, I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Don't those seem like two opposite things? In, in Galatians, he's saying, oh man, not for one minute am I gonna stand these law people. But then in 1 Corinthians, he's like, hey, to the people in the law, I became a of the law to win them to Christ. Do we have a good compass on when we're supposed to just put a stake in the ground and say no compromise, no way, forget it? And then to know, no, all things, all people. Do you know when to do those two things? I'll tell you what, that is the finest line in Christianity. I'm always trying to figure out where that line is. I'm always culturally looking at culture and saying, should we, should we care about that? I don't know. Is this all things, all people, or is it stake in the ground now? Man, that, that consumes a majority of my free thinking time. When I think about culture, I think about presenting the gospel. Is this a 
line in the sand moment? Or is this, hey, no problem. That's not a problem. In fact, we had an elders discussion on something like that. And I sent it to my theology professor. Like, oh, is this a line in the sand moment? Or is this? And he's like, no, no, that's not a line in the sand moment. Don't do that. It's always there. And I think too often we make the wrong lines in the sand. Too often. Like we want to convert people politically too often. I get emails now and people ask me, you got to talk more about politics. I'm like, why? I want to talk about my king. I don't care about somebody's politics. What I care about who their king is. That's who I care about. And that's my whole point. I'm not going to get off track talking about all that kind of stuff, trying to convert a Democrat or convert a rep, whatever it is. I'm a libertarian. So, you know, I can convert anybody then. All right. You know, I'm, I'm the minority, the, the half percent. I'm not gonna do that. Why? Because I want people to know the king. They just did that study. Did you read that? That we care more about our politics than we care about gender, race, or religion. Like number one, if there's gonna be a stake in the ground in America, it will be on politics. I tell people that want me to talk about politics. I'm like, why? Read the news. That's all there is anymore. Like I can't, you can't get out of, it's either sports which for me with the beavers, there's nothing to read or <laughs> it's politics. It's like, oh my goodness, it's insane. I wanna keep talking about the gospel. I wanna talk about, I don't wanna talk about my personal opinions, right? If you know me, I have opinions. If you ask my opinion on something, I'll give you 10 of them, okay? I'm very opinionated, but my opinions don't save people. They don't transform lives. And I think that's Paul saying right here. Hey, on all this stuff over here, Man, that doesn't matter, no problem. From the one thing that does matter, when it's the salvation of people that's at stake, I put a line in the sand and I will never, ever move that line. And Titus is super happy about that. Thank you. <laughs> now, why is Paul that way? Why is Galatians this way? I think because Jesus is this way. If you wanna read a great chapter, read Matthew 15, where he addresses the same thing. I don't know if it's hot in here, but man, I'm starting to sweat. Is it hot in here? We could open the window doors if the heating system is malfunctioning. It's keeping kids warm, I guess. Then they go to sleep. Just bring up the temperature in the room and let them all go to sleep. So Jesus of Matthew 15, here's what happens. His disciples are going, they're grabbing some wheat, they're eating it. And the Pharisees come, they're the legalists. They say, why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders by eating food without washing their hands? Like they're not even saying, hey, they're breaking scripture. They're just saying, hey, they're breaking the tradition of the elders. And so Jesus looks at them, and this is what he says. Why do you break scripture by your traditions? And then he gives the example where people would say this, it's Corban. And what it meant was this, that means it's dedicated to God. So whatever they had, they're saying, all my stuff is dedicated to God. That way, if their mom or their dad or their brother or their uncle needed to borrow something, guess what they'd said? Sorry, it's not actually mine. It's been dedicated to the Lord. Even though I use it and I drive it and I spend it, and I do everything with it, I can't help you. And so what Jesus says is, because you're doing that, you're violating the Bible that says, honor your mom and dad. So your very tradition is breaking this. And then he goes on to say, it's verses 
eight and nine, and it's brilliant. He says this, by your traditions, you make empty the worship of God. To me, when I read that and studied that, I said, that is so brilliant. When you start adding on these traditions of the elders, what happens is the proper worship of God is empty now. You're no longer free to worship God like you're supposed to. You're now a slave to traditions, to rules, to all this stuff. That's what happens to you, okay? So when a church starts doing stuff, and churches do this, they start giving people lists. Hey, you need to homeschool your kids, right? Pull them out of public schools. Public schools have gone down, whatever it is. Homeschool your kids. Well, you're no longer giving those parents the right opportunity to pray and say, actually, my kid's a missionary and they are super good. And by them being in the public school, they're actually a light there and they're a salt there and they're doing incredibly good stuff there. You're taking that away from them. So now you've emptied what God actually wants for a mom and dad to wrestle through with their kids. You've emptied it because now they're like, well, I guess we're supposed to just homeschool our kids, all right. You can't listen to this kind of music. Well, that's up to a person to pray about the music that they listen to. Or you know, TV, when I was growing up, the Smurfs were satanic. Remember that? <laughs> I'm like, with what's on TV today, please watch the Smurfs for crying out loud. <laughs> I mean, come on, they're, they're not gonna hurt you. So we had all these just rules, right? You gotta drive a Ford, whatever it is. So what happens is, and what Jesus is saying there is so brilliant. When you make these formulas, what God actually wants is destroyed because he wants people that come to him and say, hey, let's walk and let's talk. And let's talk about the way your kids are or the way you are. And let's tailor fit this to you. And instead of becoming free, you become a slave to all these rules. That's what you do. So I fight that tendency in me. I have a tendency to tell you guys what to do. And I have to always like, mm, that's not what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to get you excited about the king, right? Or I make you into slaves. And what I know is this, when a church starts laying down laws for people, it actually limits them. It's like this. So a bunch of years ago, we were having some issues. People were using up all the toilet paper and they were not replacing it with a new roll. So I laid down a law. I said, listen, kids, when you use all the toilet paper, you replace it with a new roll. If you don't, I'm getting you, okay? Next time I went in the bathroom, I go in there, guess what? It wasn't empty. There were two of the glued on little squares still there. Yeah. So I'm like, who didn't replace it? Guess what my kid said? Dad, there's still toilet paper there. I'm like, that's not toilet paper. <laughs> no, dad, there's still look right there. I'm like, oh, great. So then guess what? I got to make another law. All right, from now on, if there's not nine squares, you got to, right? You guys are like, that's what happens. Instead, it should be, hey, love the rest of the family. Like, what would you want when you sat down? That's so much higher, right? <laughs> do you want those two squares? No, but laws always do that. With a law, you always do the least possible. Think about that in April when you're filling out your taxes. You do the least possible. And that's what laws do. So I don't know if you remember Exodus 19, but I did this a couple of years ago. It's one to me the most important text in the Bible. So in Exodus 19, you, what you see is God calling the people up to the mountain to him. Come up the mountain to me. Have fellowship with me. Know me, love me. Let's talk up here. And they don't go up. 
They stay down. And so then the following chapter, guess what you get? The law, 10 commandments. And if you keep reading the story, what you see is they break those and God gives them more laws. And they break those and God gives them more laws. And they break those and they got, and we'll get this to chapter three. That's the story. It's a father who's broken heart going, really, we gotta do this? Really, I gotta keep giving you more laws? Really, I gotta keep doing this? And you know this as dads, when you give a law, guess what you have to do? You gotta defend it then. Oh, great, man, why do you make that stupid law? Like I told one of my kids, they couldn't sit on their knees anymore at the table because every time he would sit at the table on his knees, he would spill something. So I'm like, from now on, sit with your hiney on the bench, don't sit on your knees. Well, then guess what happens? The siblings start telling on him, right? Like I'm up just enjoying myself. Elijah's sitting on his knees. I'm like, great, I gotta go defend that now. I gotta come downstairs and be like, Elijah, you know? It's just so stupid. I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have, that's a stupid rule. Why'd I do that? And I think sometimes, not, not God, that God makes stupid rules, but he's like, I don't want this. But you forced my hand. So I'm giving you laws and laws and laws. What I actually want is for you to love me. And out of love you do, what would you want when you sit down? Oh, well, not two glued on squares, right? And it's a much higher, much better kingdom philosophy that sets you free from slavery to formulas and you have joy then. And that's what God wants. And so Paul is fighting this because he's like, that's what's happening. You're being enslaved by this thing. And this is a, I will not compromise on this, Paul says. And then verses six, the end of this is the church when he goes up there, says, you're right. We are preaching the same thing. And if you've noticed that I kind of maybe pronounce them a little bit stronger, he keeps saying they seemed influential. They seem like they're this certain thing. And now he's gonna give an example and we'll do it pretty quickly, 14 through, or 11 through 14. He gives an example of what happens when you allow this thing to go unchecked. So look at these, verse 14, 11, excuse me. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, he's one of the seemed like pillars. (laughs) I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Here's his example. I'm gonna show you how this works out. He does two things here. Number one, he says, the so-called pillars that you guys are saying, hey, these men, these men are, are telling us to do this, they got some cracks. And number two, here's the results of your philosophy. So first, Peter, right? He's a big dude. Barnabas, he's a big dude. Barnabas, if we didn't have Barnabas, we don't get Paul. If we don't have Peter, the church doesn't start, Acts chapter two. These are massive important people in scripture. And both of them go south. They both fall. To me, this is one of those warning texts for me personally. Just because 
I did this stuff in the past or experienced God in this way in the past or I was used in the past this way does not guarantee a faithful future. That I'm to be doing what the Bible says, examining myself, saying, God, search my heart. Lord, making sure that I I wanna stay faithful. I wanna put my hand to the plow and keep going forward. Because I've sat with so many people that said, oh, I used to be a pastor. Oh, I used to be a missionary. I used to be a youth pastor. And now there's zero kingdom in them. They're lost Levites and it breaks my heart. I say, I don't want that to happen to me. Keep me humble, Lord. Because when I'm prideful, that's when I'm gonna fall. Keep me humble, right? And now here's the results of this philosophy. Your legalistic thing, here's the results of it. Peter becomes a racist, does he not? He becomes a racist. So he's like, I'm not gonna eat with you guys anymore. So we do not live in a culinary society. (laughs) You know, our advancement of culinary is like McDonald's. That's what America, we advance that. Fast food. (laughs) See the study, I think it came out yesterday. A third of our meals are at fast food. I was like, oh my goodness, that's terrible. But it's like, man, it's cheap. And I get to eat in my car just like God intended. So man, let's go. That's America. So, you know, we don't understand what food is. Because in certain cultures, food is it, right? Who you eat with, who you break bread with means you're united with them. But we don't have to look very far in our own rearview mirror. We did the same thing in America, right? In the 1960s, in the South, it was segregated. You guys eat over here and we'll eat over here. So we don't look much to see racism in our own time when it came to eating. So here's what Peter does. Peter's like enjoying the church at Antioch. He's eating shrimp. He's eating bacon. He's loving it. He's like, man, I've been missing this for so long. Are you kidding me? This is great. And he's just chowing down. And one day he's chowing down and in come these people he knows are from the church in Jerusalem. And he knows they're legalists. And he knows these are the kind of people that believe you get closer to God by the food that you eat. Do you know people like that? That they believe because I have this certain diet, God likes me more. I'm closer to him. I always tell people like that, you know what? You wanna get close to God? Keep eating fast food, drink some Red Bulls, and you'll be with him in no time. That's how you get closer to God, okay? It's the opposite of what you think. So these guys just believe because we're eating salad and no shrimp, we're closer to God. So Peter sees this, he's like mid-bite going, oh no. So he's like sets down his plate, backs away, walks over in the corner where all the kosher people are at. And then Barnabas, who's just chowing down too, is like, where'd Peter go? He's like, oh, uh-oh. He sets down his fork and he walks over there too. And you can just imagine what happens in that church. All of a sudden, the joy and the freedom and the unity and the camaraderie and the word one is just dissolved in a moment. And now the Gentiles are feeling like, oh, something's wrong with us. Oh, we're second-class Christians now. Oh, the really holy people are over there eating that kind of food. And Paul walks into this and he's just ticked. What does he do? Does he say, Peter, you racist? No, it's verse 14. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. 
You know what Paul does? He's constantly taking the gospel and the implications of what it means that Jesus Christ defeated death, destroyed evil, set us free from the law, set us free from sin. He takes that and he's constantly laying it over people's lives and seeing, are you living according to that truth? Are you living according to that truth? And when he lays it over what Peter had just done, he says, man, you're out of step. It's orthopedio. Ortho, we get orthodontist, straight. Padio is walk. You're not walking in the truth of the gospel. You're no longer walking with the understanding of what Jesus has actually done. And I actually use the three things right here to evaluate my own life. If I got out of step with the gospel, because there are three warnings in here that, caught, that you see the ramifications of when you get out of step with the gospel. They are number one, he separated himself, division. Number two, fearing the circumcision, you start getting afraid of people. And then number three, hypocritic, that the Jews acted hypocritically, hypocriticalness. Those are the three. Those are on my radar all the time now when I'm looking at my own behavior. Am I divisive in the body of Christ? Am I fearful of people's opinions? And I'm acting hypocritical because if I am, I'm probably out of step with the gospel. Those are to me, my radar. So I'll try to explain them to you. First divisive. What I've seen in a church, when the gospel is no longer number one, something else has to take its place. And very often what takes its place is um, you start dividing over stupid things. Systems, a certain theological position. This is really important, whatever, but it's not actually the gospel. It's not, only, it's not Jesus, it's second tier, third tier stuff. So you're just dividing over this stuff and it's, ah. Oh. What I think about the church is this. I think the church is relational and it's actually a marriage between Jesus and us. And it's Ephesians chapter five. And in a marriage, if you have a little issue with your spouse, are you instantly like calling a divorce lawyer? Like that's it. No, why? Because you love her. Because you love him. And love covers those things. Right? It's like, I've told you about my toothpaste theology, right? Yeah? No? Okay. So you guys know that. that. Okay. My wife and I came from two different toothpaste theologies. I was a very, my, my house was so strict on this. It was flip top caps. It was wipe them off. We had these little squeeze things that would go up the tube. You always squeeze from the bottom. You push the tube up and they it rolled it up. It was, they looked perfect all the way to the last drop, Right? So I, amen, someone says, yeah. So that was, my, that, was, that was my theology. That's how you did toothpaste. Well, my wife, very different. It was get it out of the tube however you can. And very often the tube looked like a banana that a two-year-old had got a hold of, just, you know, mangled. So I saw that pretty quickly. I'm like, okay. And I explained to my wife, proper toothpaste theology. Sweetie, this is how you do toothpaste. And I bought a couple of those little things and this is how we're gonna do it, right? And she's just lovingly was like, oh yeah, that's so awesome. That's so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it didn't work <laughs> because pretty soon it was crumpled again. I did not like, that's it, you're divorced. You know what I did? I started squeezing the toothpaste tube wherever too because it doesn't matter. What really matters is she brushes her teeth, <laughs> right? That's what the gospel does to you. The gospel, you start, you're able to say, you know what? That actually doesn't matter. What matters is this. And I can be okay with you doing that because this is what really matters. It prioritizes what matters in the kingdom. 
And you're able to take a lot of things less seriously and you don't divide over stupid stuff anymore. You divide over one thing, just like Paul, it's the gospel. It's the gospel. I'll be ironed will on the gospel, but it'll be all things to all people when it comes to other matters. That's what Paul was able to do, right? Number two, fear. I know this, when I start becoming afraid of people's opinions of me, I've got to step with the gospel. When I won't preach a certain thing or won't tell somebody some truth or whatever it is, I know this, I am now elevating their opinion above the most opinion the most important opinion in the world, which is the king says he loves me, I'm his family. And when I know that opinion, it's so strong for me. I can be free to tell people in love what I'm supposed to tell them. But when I get out of step with the gospel, oh my goodness, people and being afraid of what they might think of me begins to dominate me. And like Peter, I'll do stupid things. And then thirdly, being a hypocrite. And this is what a hypocrite is. It's acting more holy than you actually are. When I get out of step of the gospel, I start doing that. Hey bro, I was praying for you. Actually, I wasn't. Someone's coming to visit me. So I make sure my Bible is like open to like Leviticus. They're just reading Leviticus. Poof. Honey, man, honey on my lips like David. Mwah. Love Leviticus, <laughs> all right? You just get weird because you're a hypocrite. And I know when I had those things in me, I'm trying to do something that's not right. I'm trying to pretend I'm wearing a mask that's not right. When I listen to people uh, and their problems with their kids or their marriage, I'm like, oh, that's too bad for you, bro. I got a cape that says S on it. I don't have those struggles. I know, I'm out of step with the gospel. Instead of saying, bro, totally. Man, marriage is under attack. We have a strong enemy. Yes, I get that. You become a hypocrite. So the gospel is this. The gospel keeps telling me, you're already in Jesus. Don't act holy. You are holy. You are, what are you talking, Matt? You're a moron. Quit trying to act that way. You are holy. I have made you holy, period. I've defeated every foe. What are you afraid of? Take your mask off. Allow me to transform you. And that's the gospel. And when you get that, oh, life is beautiful. You're set free. You get joy. And that's why Paul is hammering this right here. It's the gospel. If you're gonna draw a line in the sand with your kids, with your spouse, with other people, draw the right line. Draw it verse five, right? So simple. We would not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. That's the line. And it leads to joy and it leads to freedom. So Jesus, even this night, we have a world and a culture and an enemy that continually wants to move lines on us and cause us to divide over things that don't matter. To segregate ourselves away from the very people that you have called to be your sons and your daughters. Forgive us. May we be the church, the called out assembly in Grants Pass in Josephine County 
that stands iron-willed for the truth of the gospel and then generous, all things to all people in other areas. Help us on that tightrope, we pray. I ask forgiveness, Lord, in my own heart where I can divide over things that don't matter, where I can fear people's opinion of me, where I can act hypocritical, holier than I actually am, instead of knowing the truth that I've been made holy by you. Jesus, help us all in that. Let's not be fearful people. Let's not be hypocritical people. Let's not be divisive people. Let's be gospel-centered King Jesus loving people. So fill us with your spirit even now, Lord. And may we go back into homes that maybe there was division there and may we bring unity. And we, may we go back to workplaces where maybe there was fear there. And may we go back there with the boldness that comes from knowing that we are children of the King. And we, may we go back into relationships where maybe we have pretended to be something we're not. And may you give us the confidence to take off our masks and be who we actually are, knowing that we have been made holy by you. So may these truths not sit on a page, but may the word become flesh and dwell in us, we ask. We pray this in your name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.